Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here this morning. Uh, it's great to be back with you here this morning. It's been a while since I've, I've been here. Uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I was watching, I don't know if you did this. Did any of you do this where when you're watching the video with Tom, you look like that to see what books he's reading in the back? I was doing I was like, oh, yeah, interesting. Oh, let's see what you're reading. I wonder if Tom actually did pull a few books out of there when he, when he knew he was doing the video. I think that's so uh, anyway, but um, anyone heard of the, the Jesus Storybook Bible? Hands up. Jesus Storybook Bible. We've got a picture of it here. Yeah, it's a little kid's Bible. Lots of pictures, and it's, it's fun. And uh, They've actually got um, a series of videos which basically follows the Jesus Storybook Bible. And my son, Max, who's five, he loves to watch one of these videos every night before he goes to bed. Don't judge us. We, you know, he watches the video rather than us reading it to him. Okay, so just, let's just let that slide. He watches the video. Um, but we, we watch one of these every evening before he goes to bed. And, and basically, his favorite video, and it's basically about 50 videos that go through the whole Bible. His favorite one at the minute is the one where Jesus dies on the cross. And I was like, okay, that's a good one to like. But basically, it means that every night before we go to bed, Max is like, I want to watch the one where Jesus dies on the cross. So we have to watch Jesus dying on the cross every night. And it's only a five-minute video, but I've seen it many, many times in the last few weeks. And basically, um, we get into the video, and uh, Max is this thing where Jesus is on the cross in the video, and he has this thing where he'll be like, is he dead yet, Daddy? No, he's not dead yet. Five seconds later, is he dead yet, Daddy? No, he's not dead yet. Five seconds in. Is he dead yet, Daddy? No, no, Max, he's talking on the cross. He's forgiving people on the cross. Look, he's talking. He's not dead yet. Oh, okay, right. And just keeps asking, is he dead yet, until he dies. I'm like, he's dead now, okay. And then, and then basically, there comes this point in the video where you know, he eventually you know, says, Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, and he dies. Max immediately is, what's finished? And I'm like, oh, right, okay. And I'm like, well, Jesus' mission, you know, to die for the sin of the world, that's what's finished. And Max is like, Okay, all right, okay. And then the video ends with Jesus being buried in the tomb. And this is the bit I like the most. Um, what Max says after this, actually, is, is when basically it gets to this point, the video ends, he hands me my phone back, which he's been watching the video on, and he says to me, but he didn't stay dead, did he, Daddy? Aww. I'm like, yes, that's my boy, yes. Came back to life, three days. Mm. Yes, five-year-old win there. So I'm, I'm very happy at that point, and we're all a bit pumped, and it's like, okay, it's bedtime now. So, uh, but, but it's an important part of the story, isn't it? That, you know, Jesus coming back to life, because him coming back to life again showed, showed that he had defeated the two most powerful things in this world, which is sin and death. And by doing so, he proved that he reigns supreme over everything and over everyone. That's what God proved by Jesus dying and rising again three days later. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the fact that God is alive and that he reigns supreme. God is alive and that he reigns supreme. Now this morning uh, we're continuing with our Living God series, uh, which is going through the book of 1 Kings. You've been doing that for a number of weeks. And the passage we're going to look at this morning 
is 1 Kings 18, verse 21 to 39. You can read it in your Bible or it'll appear behind me. You can just follow it along there. Basically, this passage shows us just what I've said, that God, the living God, is supreme. Our God, the living God, is supreme. And it's a very, very well-known story. Um, I'm sure almost everyone here has heard it before numbers of times. It's the story of the prophet Elijah basically setting up a contest between God on the one side and this false god called Baal on the other side. And the contest was set up to see, okay, who is the real god? This is the competition. Who is the real god? Now, spoiler alert, God wins, Baal loses. I hope that isn't disappointing anyone. You'll be like, oh, I wanted to know how it ended. So that's what happens. The contest shows that any doubt that Yahweh, the living God, our God, is supreme and that he is the real God. Now, we're going to read the passage, but just a little bit of background before we read the passage. Um, So when this happened, when this story happened, about 60 years before this story, King Solomon died. David's son, King Solomon, died. And after he died, there was a power struggle, and Israel split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, which confusingly was still called Israel, and then you've got the southern kingdom, which was called Judah, which we have have it just there. Okay, so you've got these two kingdoms. Now, for the next 200 years, Judah had a series of kings in which some of them were good and they obeyed God, and some of them were bad and didn't obey God. It's kind of 50-50, really. Israel, on the other hand, the northern kingdom, all the kings were bad. All of them disobeyed God, wanted nothing to do with God. Okay? Now, Israel had bad kings, they had really bad kings, and they had really, 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 really bad kings. And the really, 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 really baddest of the baddest lot of kings of Israel was a guy called King Ahab, and you may have heard of his wife, Jezebel, as well. They were, I think, they were nasty pieces of work. That's probably the best way to put it. Not only did they worship false gods, but they made all the other people, they led them all astray, made them do the same thing, made them worship false gods, and if that wasn't bad enough, they actually killed all of God's prophets. They had them all executed, apart from one guy who they couldn't manage to get their hands on a guy called Elijah. Now, Elijah got some guts. He comes up to Ahab and he says, because you're so evil. Here's what God says. God says, there's not going to be any more rain on Israel until I say so. Now, water is a big deal in the Middle East where, you know, it's pretty short. There's a shortage of that. So that was a big thing. Elijah then leaves Israel and hangs out with a widow and her son in a place called Zarephath, which is kind of north of of, of Israel. I think we've got another map, have we? Yeah, possibly coming. Oh, no, man. it's there. So it's kind of north. Basically, it's where the M is on the kingdom. That's where he basically goes. Um, so he goes there, spends time there, and after three years, he returns to Israel. Now, by this time, there's a famine in the land, and uh, which is to be expected, no rain for three years. And he appears to Ahab. Now, Ahab has been looking for him for three years to try and make him ask God to send rain. Now, when Elijah Elijah meets Ahab, I think it's safe to say it's a pretty prickly conversation. Uh, You know, it's not not a run and hug each other kind of thing. Ahab's like, ah, troubler of Israel, look at you, you mess everything up. And Elijah's like, me mess everything up? You're the one who's following all these false gods. You're the reason all this stuff is happening. So it's a bit of a back and forth. And then basically Elijah says, okay, well, let's sort this out. Let's have a contest to settle who's the real God once and for all. So Elijah suggests that they have it on Mount Carmel. Now, there we go, Mount Carmel. That's where it is. Uh, It's a place I visited on my holidays. 
when I was in Israel. I won't bore you with holiday stories, but it's a nice mountain. And um, <laughs> that's about it, really. It's built up. It looks a bit like Burnage, to be honest. So it's not, there's nothing very spectacular about it. It's high. It's a mountain. Yeah, that's it. So, um, so that was it. So it's Mount Carmel. Now, interesting thing about Mount Carmel is uh, that it, the word Mount Carmel actually means fertile garden. Um, and that's because Mount Carmel saw heavier rainfall than anywhere else in the whole country because it was higher up. And as a result, it became one of the most important worship places for Baal, who was the storm god. So they wanted to have it in a place where there was lots of rain. And that's why Elijah, when it comes to it, we'll read the passage, Elijah had to build an altar, but actually the prophets of Baal, they didn't need to build an altar because there was already one there because they'd already done a lot of sacrifice. They'd already done a lot of stuff on that mountain. That was, that was their place, okay? So this is like, this is like a contest. Elijah versus the prophets of, Baal, prophets of Baal. It's like Elijah's playing away from home. You know, the prophets of Baal, they're, they're in their home stadium here. This is, this is what it's like. And actually what Ahab does, so Ahab agrees to the contest and he assembles 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, which is another false god back then, on Mount Carmel against Elijah. So it's 850 to 1. Okay, so the odds are stacked against them. But they're not the only people on the mountain. Like with everything uh, like this, loads of people showed up to watch. So there was like thousands of people on this mountain there watching this contest as well. So that's, that's the scene set. So let's read the passage, 1 Kings 18, verses 21 to 39. It says this, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Baal has 450 prophets. I'm not totally sure where the prophets of Asherah have gone at this point. They're kind of keeping a bit of a low profile. It seems to be the prophets of Baal are the main ones here. Verse 23 continues though. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is the Lord. So that's the rules of the game here. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bowls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. So Elijah's mocking them here. And what's interesting is the word translated here as traveling literally means withdrawing, which was a polite word back then for going to the toilet. You know, Elijah, I mean, if we're, if we're going to be really explicit, here, Elijah's going to say, like, I think he may have come for a poo. You know, I think that's what he's saying to them, you know. You know, maybe he's sleeping, maybe he's on the toilet, maybe he's, 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 he's mocking them. Verse 28, so they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. 
with the stones. He built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sails of seed. Reckons about 11 kilograms. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you're God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Then all the people saw this. They fell prostrate and cried, The Lord is God. The Lord, he is God. So Elijah's God contest has a clear winner. I think we'll all agree. God, Yahweh, wins. I think we can say convincingly wins. You know, fireball from heaven just consumes the sacrifice. I think everyone was there being like, Yep, that God's the real one. Yeah, that's no doubt about that. We, we know, who this, know who the real God is right now. So it's a convincing win for Elijah and Yahweh. Um, but this morning, I, I want to just look at just two things uh, before, before, we, before we finish and move back into worship. I, I want to look at, firstly, who do we worship? Because that's what this passage is about. It's a choice. Who, do we, who are you going to worship? The real God or something else? And, and secondly, just want to touch briefly on how do we worship as well. So who do we worship? How do we worship? Firstly, who do we worship? Well, as I said, that's what this story is all about. It's about who do we worship? You know, the reason Elijah asked God to do this miracle is so that the people would choose to worship him again rather than other gods. We see that in verse 37. Elijah says, God, answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. You see, Elijah wants people's hearts to be turned back to God so that they would worship him again, so that God would be the most important thing in their lives again. And that's what he wants for us too. That's what he wants for us too. Now, in our lives, like in this story, there's also a contest over who gets our worship. You know, God is one option, but there are many other gods that we can worship too. Now, I may be wrong, but I don't think any of us here are tempted to worship Baal. You know, I think as false gods go, I think he's kind of had his day a long time ago. But I think it can be very easy for us to fall into the temptation of, of worshipping other things as gods. You know, worshipping what people think of us. Having people think we're good or successful. Or worshipping... I don't know, the God of comfort or lifestyle or worshipping the God of a perfect home, worshipping the God of, oh, of the perfect family, perfect body, perfect job, the God of success, the God of money, the God of security for the future, which we use money to try and get. You know, it'd be really easy to fall into worshipping these gods today. And our society tells us there is nothing wrong with worshipping these gods. Now, in and of, the, of themselves, these things I've mentioned, there's nothing wrong with any of these things except when they squeeze God out of our hearts, when they replace God as number one in our lives. And it, it's so easy for our hearts to be drawn to other things, isn't it? So easy. You know, in terms of a definition of worship, 
real simply, worship is our response to what we value most. Worship is our response to what we value most. What you value most, what you, what you do about that. That's what's the most important thing in our life. Now, you can find out what's most important to someone by checking these three areas, really simply. How you spend your time, how you spend your money, and what you worry about. You follow the path of these three things, and you'll, you'll probably arrive at what you worship. And everybody worships something. Not just people sitting in church. Everybody worships something. And you follow the path of those three things, and you'll probably arrive at the door of what you worship. What's the most important thing in your life? Now, worshiping, God, worshiping something other than God is rarely a sudden thing, and it's rarely ever a conscious thing either. You know, there's, you don't get people wake up, you know, on a, on a morning and be like, oh, you know what, I feel like worshipping my job today. I'm going to worship my job, or I'm going to worship my family, I'm going to worship, you don't wake up one morning and do that. It, it, it's not a sudden thing, rather, it's much more of a gradual thing of gradually spending more and more of your time on something. You know, I'm not so much talking about work, I'm talking about things you have a choice to, you know, you have a choice to spend time on. More and more of your time on something, spending more and more of your money on something, and gradually spending more and more of your time thinking about something, daydreaming about it, worrying about it. It's a gradual thing. It can creep up, and slowly but surely, it's got your heart. You know, last year we uh, had the upstairs rooms in our house all replastered. Oh my goodness, it looked so much better. Like, it was awful before. And you've just got these smooth walls. I never thought I would get so much joy from smooth walls. And doors that, oh, we've got new doors, but doors that open and close properly. Oh, man, when you don't have them, you don't appreciate it. But it was beautiful. And I remember getting to the end of the project and thinking, oh, you know what I would love? Elizabeth, said to my wife, Elizabeth, you know what I'd love? I'd love an extension. Wouldn't you love an extension? <laughs> I would love an extension. Oh, we could... And I started thinking about it and um, daydreaming about it and, you know, be like, okay, I'm actually daydreaming about this a lot. You know, and like, last thing before I go to bed, I'd be like, yeah, kitchen at the back, <laughs> extra toilet, put a bathroom in, we can move things around, move this here, put a door in there, put a wall in there. I'm like, I'm visually, you know, I should be sleeping, but I'm like, I'm mapping out our extension in my head and I'm... And I did, and I started it more and more, thinking about it more and more, and daydreaming about it more and more. And, and you know, it made me feel good. I'm like, oh, yeah, this would be good. And I'm thinking, oh, I can get the mortgage. I sort the mortgage out, take some money out of it, and talk to some. Yeah, so I started doing that more and more. And, and, and in a sense, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But when it started to grab hold of my heart, I had to really look at myself. I had to really check myself and say, Andy, hey, hold on. What are you doing here? What's going on here? And, 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 and I found what it I don't know if this works for you, but I find at that moment, what actually helped me was to remind myself of, of Christians from history and like what their vision is. You know, I'm just thinking of Hudson Taylor and thinking, you know, there's a guy whose vision wasn't to have a house extension. It was to see China saved for Jesus. And like, it kind of felt, made me feel a bit bad, like a bit con- condemned at the, at the start. But then I'm like, yeah, no, but uh, yeah, that's actually... Do I really just want to see a house extension or do I want to see like a bunch of people saved? Yeah, actually, I want to see a bunch of people saved. Do I want to see the kingdom grow? Do I want to see, you know, the, the poor brought out of poverty? Do I want to see the rich embrace generosity? I'm like, yeah, no, these are the things I actually want to see. And it, there was something of a vision of the kingdom that came back. And it wasn't like I kind of, 
kick the extension into touch. Like, maybe we'll get it or whatever. I don't know. But, like, a vision of the kingdom came back and then replaced it. And, and, and that's what it's about, I think. It's replacing that. I was talking to Elizabeth about this. She was saying something she's found helpful is saying, you know, it's okay to say that, you know, I want that thing. I want that extension. Or I want to travel. I want to do this, that, and the other. But it's, it's a really helpful thing, she says, to ask herself the question. She says, would I be content if I didn't have it? You know, would I be content if I didn't, you know, wear the perfect weight or didn't have these looks or didn't have this job or couldn't have the house extension or couldn't go traveling anymore? Would I be content with that? It's a really powerful question to ask, to check if you're really worshiping the thing or it's just something you're enjoying. Okay, so I've, I've gone down the rabbit hole there on that one, I know. Um, but this story, it, it's about God's people turning their hearts back to him in worship. And I don't know, maybe for you sitting here this morning, this is something you need to do today yourself. Maybe for you, your heart, if you're honest, your heart's been pulled in a whole load of different directions. And you're sitting here thinking, yeah, I want it to be fully devoted to Jesus again. All right, I'm not going to get a show of hands right now, and I'm not eyeballing anybody in particular. Don't worry. But maybe you're in that place. And I think if that is you, I think if you want to get right with God again and put him as number one, I think it involves a few things. I think it involves, number one, confession. You know, saying sorry to God. I think it involves surrendering yourself to God again. And I think it also, I think probably, possibly involves killing some stuff too. And you're like, what? I finished in verse 39. Because Tom, we put the preaching series together. It said, finish in verse 39. When you keep going, the next few verses, is the prophets of Baal being killed. And um, I, I don't know why we didn't cover it, maybe because we don't like talking about people getting killed on Sunday morning. Unless it's Jesus, because of the happy ending to that one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but that's the reality. What the people did after this was they removed the things that led them to worship the false gods in the first place, the prophets. And maybe that's something we need to think about doing too. You know? <laughs> so let's devote ourselves, let's offer our hearts back to God. Sometimes you just got to kill some stuff. Paul talks about it in, in Colossians 3 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. It could be a whole bunch of other things as well. And it's, it's interesting. It's almost like a picture of a... Like, if you have a, a, a dangerous dog that's attacked a bunch of people and caused real harm, you don't keep feeding that thing, do you? You put it down. Like, even dog lovers all agree, dangerous dog that's out of control that attacks people, you put it down. No one disagrees with them. Okay, and it's the same with sometimes the things in our lives. And you know what we've got to do? We're just going to stop feeding them and let them die. And let them die. And I think for some of us, we've got stuff in our lives and we're feeding it and we need to kill it. I think, I think for some of us today, actually, when it comes to turning back to God, that's what it looks like. It's not so much hold your hands out at the end of the, you know, respond, God, I want to give you my heart. It's actually, I just need to kill something in my life. I just need a habit or something that's harming me or harming others. I just need to stop that and ask the Holy Spirit to help me to do that. So just like in Elijah's time, uh, not only you know, were there other gods, but uh, in our time too, there's, there's other gods that we can worship. But there's, just like in Elijah's time, there's also a lot of pressure on us as believers to worship other gods. Um, and as believers... We're in the minority, just like Elijah was. You know, he was the only prophet of God left. And, you know, I, I was read, when I was reading this this week, I was thinking, you know, Elijah, he had a tough time, didn't he? You know, he could have been like, you know what, I just fancy an easy life. 
If you come beat them, join them. These prophets, man, they eat well. They eat with the king and queen, like the best food in a time of famine. You know, they live well. They've got each other. They're respected. They're listened to. They have the ear of the king. And here I am on my own, on the run. It would have been so easy for Elijah to just give in, have a quiet life, worship Baal. But he didn't. He kept worshiping the one true God, even though it seemed like the whole world was against him. And I don't know, for you, it may feel like the same thing. It may feel like in your family life, in your work life, in wherever, it can seem like you're the only one left. You know, the only one left living for God. And if that's you, I just want to say two things. Firstly, you're probably not the only one left, okay? I was speaking to a guy from church just last Saturday, and he was saying, saying, oh, yeah, I started a prayer group at my work. Prayer groups are the best things for getting Christians to come out of the woodwork. You know, people you never knew were Christians. I started this prayer group, and you get all these people coming like, you're a Christian, I never knew that. Oh, you're a Christian, I've worked with you so long. He says, it's a great thing. So actually, you might be surprised. There might be more people in your workplace. There might be more people around you who are Christians, but just haven't told you. And actually, in Elijah's time, he, he wasn't even the only one left either. Obadiah, Ahab's chief administrator, who was a believer. If you read around the passage, you'll read about him. He used his influence to secretly rescue and protect a hundred of God's prophets. So Elijah wasn't on his own. And I just want to say, you probably aren't either. But also, I just want to say, if you are the only Christian where you are, maybe God's put you there for a reason. You know, Obadiah was a follower of God where there weren't many others, but he was there for a reason. To save the lives of a hundred prophets during that godless time in Israel. And I just want to say, perhaps you are in your workplace, you are in your work life, you are in the place that, that you are for such a time as this. God's got something for you. He's, he's got something for you to do, and, and he, he wants you to be where you are. So that, just think, that could be, the, that could be for some of us. <clears throat> so that's the first thing I just want to see this morning. Who we worship. We worship God. But secondly... I want us to super, real briefly, well, briefly-ish, I'll be honest with you, briefly-ish, right, just look at how do we worship, how do we worship, right? Well, look at how they worship in verse 39, all right? It says, when all the people saw what had happened, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. All right, I am going to demonstrate. Are you ready for this? So prostrate, let's just be clear. So this is proper kind of, on the floor, like arms out, completely bowed in worship, okay? Now, it's not a very English response, is it? <laughs> you know? Stiff upper lip and all that. I just, I was, I was thinking, if this, if this happened in England, I think it would have been a bit more like hands in pockets. Wow, that was an impressive miracle. <laughs> yeah, Lord... Yeah, he's got, yep, yep. But yeah, I'm not, uh, not really the expressive type. Uh, and you know, you know, worship is all about what happens on the inside, isn't it? Uh, and I'll be honest, all that bowing and crying out stuff, it's a little bit over the top. Like, man, get a grip of yourself, guys. Come on. Compose yourself. Sometimes I think, it, like, if it happened in England, that's how it would have been. But it isn't like that at all here. These guys are all in. Okay, they see the miracle and they hit the deck. They know what to do. Sprawled out in worship. They're not just saying the Lord is good, but they're crying out at the top of their voices. And as I said earlier, worship is simply a response to what we value most. And when we value God most in our lives, we will worship Him. 
And and worship is an inward attitude, inward heart attitude, yes, but it also has a close relationship to our physical bodies. You see, bowing and worshiping for the Israelites here were one and the same thing. See, the, the inward feeling of worship for them and the physical manifestation of worship, bowing, went hand in hand. Okay, so there's just no way they would have went, the Lord is God, and, you know, stood there with their hands in their pockets, or, you know, holding their coffee cup. You know, that would have been completely nonsensical to them. You see, worship in the ancient world always involved your body, even when it, was in a, even when it wasn't in a corporate sense. You know, you're, it always involved your body. It's offering our bodies. And, you, and we see this in the fact that one of the Hebrew words for worship in the Bible, the, the word yada, literally means... To throw your hands in the air. And you see, throwing your hands in the air was so much part of Hebrew praise and worship that they actually began to use the word for throwing your hands in the air, just to mean the same thing. You know, so basically they say, that's worship. People just throw their hands up in the air. It's just hands up, same thing. That's, it becomes so common, it just became the same, the same thing. And you know, I feel like in Britain we've changed it. I think it's like, let's worship hands in pockets. You know, <laughs> it's the complete opposite. We're like, yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. I was reading a, a psychology article uh, recently. It makes, me, it makes me sound really smart, but it was a very short one. Okay? And there was pictures in it and stuff, so it wasn't, you know. But it talks about how our body posture affects us emotionally. And basically what it was saying was, it's difficult to be happy while you're frowning. And, you know, it's, it's difficult to be sad while you're smiling. There's something in the way your body is affects you emotionally. And basically what it was saying was that Certain body postures open us up emotionally and others close us down. You know, so arms up open, opens us up, you know, hunched in pockets down like that, closes down emotionally. Our, our bodies affect that. Our body posture on the outside does affect our heart attitude on the inside when it comes to worship. And basically all this just to say, when we worship together on a Sunday, let's take up a position in worship that reflects what we're singing and, and honestly, it will enhance our worship together. And you might even want to try, like the ancient Hebrews, raising your hands. Because when we take an open posture in worship, our emotions also open up too. And also, when we're expressive in worship, it encourages, it's encouraging for others to see as well. It really is. I know I've shared this before a few times, but there was a guy who used to go to this site five, six years ago. And in the worship time, he'd have his hands raised and he would just be singing his heart out. Every time he was here, hands raised, singing his heart. And I said to him one time, I was like, Tom, mate, can you sit at the front, please? Because watching you worship encourages me to worship. Okay, from now on, sit at the front. He's like, really? What? Is that weird? No, just sit at the front, do what I tell you, and worship. And he was like, okay, fine. And that's what he did. And it was so encouraging just to see him worship. Um, and it encouraged all of us. So being expressive in worship is also, it's actually not just encouraged for others to people to see. It's encouraging for our worship leaders as well to see. Here's a little secret, everyone. All right? When our worship leaders are at the front leading us, it's not just you who can see them. They can also see you. I know. Isn't that a revelation? They can also see you. And what do they see? <laughs> the worship leaders amongst us are laughing, but going like, yeah, that's not a laughing matter. <laughs> what do they see? You know, <laughs> got to finish my coffee. What, yeah, what do they see? You know, when, they, when our worship leaders can see some people really expressing themselves in worship, let me tell you, it's so encouraging for them. 
And honestly, we owe our worship leaders a bit of help. I mean, they've been singing on their own behind screens to people in masks for 18 months. You know, so we, we owe them a bit of help. So let's express ourselves in worship. Let's do it. I did say briefly, and that wasn't as brief as I thought. But anyway, we're almost at the end. To the people that day, they saw a great miracle. God triumphed over evil in a very public way, and in a way that left no one in any doubt over who had won. But this, this story is, is just a, it's a foreshadow of, it, of an even greater victory over evil on another mountain in Israel, and that was Jesus' victory over sin and death on the cross. And the reason Jesus defeated sin and death at the cross was the same reason why God defeated the prophets of Baal, so that the hearts of his people would turn to him. Only this time, that wouldn't just be a temporary thing, because this time God would send the Holy Spirit, not just, not just on some of God's people, as in the Old Testament, but on all of his people, everyone who would call on his name. And in Ezekiel 36, God describes it like this, saying, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's what God has done for us, his people. He's given us that heart of flesh. And you know, what I find interesting about this is Elijah and the people back in it. Sometimes we could look at that story and think, wow, wouldn't it have been cool to see that? You know, it would have been there in the crowd. But you know, Elijah and the people back then, yeah, they saw amazing stuff that day. But you know, they'd have traded it all for what we have in Jesus. They would have traded it all for what we have in Jesus. As Romans 8 verse 1 and 2 says, it says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's what we have in Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's what we have in Jesus. The living God who is supreme and who calls us to worship Him. We're going to do that now. We're going to worship Him. If the band want to come back up.